hashtag cancel white people. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's subscriber-only episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are discussing the civil rights cases of 1883. The cases are about the 13th and 14th Amendments, which abolished slavery and established that states must provide equal protection to all citizens. Both amendments were very quickly gutted by the civil rights cases, and the Supreme Court held that they only outlawed discrimination by states, not by private actors. In doing so, the court helped lay the groundwork for the Jim Crow era and set back the cause of civil rights by nearly 100 years. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have weighed down our republic like the hundredth opening metaphor for this podcast has weighed down my soul. (laughs) 100 episodes. I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon. Hey. Hello. And Michael. Hey, everybody. I'm wearing a party hat. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) 100 episodes based on a very rough count we did. And I got to say, feels like 200. Easy. (laughs) Feels like thousands. A lot. Yeah. Based on my gray hair, based on my aging soul. Feels like a lot, folks. Differences between me now, me two years ago, know more about the law, know a lot more about the Supreme Court, (laughs) a lot more sad day to day, (laughs) Mm. Uh and richer, just a lot richer. (laughs) (laughs) I have a a real story, though. Since it's our 100th episode, I want to share something real quick. When I was shopping this podcast around with Leon, he was like, so how many episodes are we going to do? Because, like, aren't we going to run out of cases? Hmm. And I was like, yeah, but, like, we don't have to worry about that until, like, episode 50. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are. Look at us now. I don't know how we keep doing it. Not only did we get to 100 pretty easy, but we have, like, the entire year scheduled. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's content for 50 more, at least. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So today's case is the civil rights cases of 1883. These were a handful of consolidated cases about the scope of the 13th and 14th Amendments. In short, in order to rein in the private and institutional racism of the post-war South, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1875. That law, in part, aimed to curb private discrimination by businesses and individuals. But the court struck the law down claiming that the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery did not apply and that the 14th Amendment, which has the Equal Protection Clause, also did not apply because it doesn't apply to private actors, but only to states themselves. In other words, the 14th Amendment made it illegal for states to discriminate by race, but not for individuals to discriminate by race. This case is at least in part responsible for the brutal Jim Crow regime that would come to dominate Southern politics until the 1960s, when Congress and the courts finally stepped back in to right their wrong. And it's symbolic of a turning point in American politics, where the federal government began to capitulate to the continued belligerence of the South, thus allowing for the rise of entrenched racist institutions at the state and local level. Yeah, We're going to talk about that. 
We're going to talk about the rejection of the promise of the Reconstruction Amendments by the court and the ways in which the law, even in the modern era, has never really reckoned with its post-Civil War failures. Uh, so, Ray, want to pop in with the history? Yeah, let's just strap in for the fastest, loosest history lesson ever. Just want to note up top, these cases, the civil rights cases of 1883, I think these are the oldest cases we've covered on the podcast. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. That does sound right. So these cases are really about how the country legally came to terms with the results of the Civil War. And the holding and the majority opinion in this case really became the intellectual foundation for the system of racial apartheid that we live in today. So, okay, let's talk about the 13th Amendment. After the Civil War, the 13th Amendment obviously abolished slavery. And the 13th Amendment is literally two sentences. All it says is, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Okay, so, you know, that's the whole amendment. It clearly prohibits slavery. Except if you've been convicted of a crime. That's a whole nother episode. Asterisk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the social, economic, and political status of freed slaves after the Civil War was very much still, like, not just an open question, but being violently opposed by white people, especially in the South. Right. So, like, communities of freed slaves were being massacred. Black people were being lynched. The KKK is formed like immediately after the Civil War with the express purpose of white Southern resistance to the results of the Civil War and to launch a barely underground campaign of racist terrorism and violence to intimidate black people and white Republican leaders. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this might be a good time to mention that Republicans were good back then. (laughs) I don't know if if our listeners remember like early high school history, you know, ninth Mm -hmm. grade history, but Republicans pretty cool in relative terms back in the day. They will tell you they're the party of Lincoln, right? As they said about the project of undoing all the gains <laughs> of the Civil War. That's right. Did you know that Democrats were actually the ones who wanted slaves, right? <laughs> and still do. <laughs> you know, the current Republican Party line is like, "We are the party of Lincoln. We freed the slaves." Democrats are actually the pro-slavery party, and also we should be able to have. Confederate flags, you know, <laughs> above state capitals on our pickup trucks, uh, et cetera. This is the perfectly coherent and normal position of the modern Republican Party. That's right. Right. Anyway, Re, we we cut you off. Um, I, I think you're you're getting to the black codes, right? Right. Which are laws governing the conduct of black people, you know, specifically targeted at black people. These most famous of the black codes were enacted in the South just after the Civil War and after the passage of the 13th Amendment. These were laws that took various different shapes, but they governed black people's behavior. They suppressed their political influence and ability to participate civically in society. And they were particularly concerned, these laws, with controlling freedom of movement and labor among freed black people. So this is the start of the convict lease system, where newly freed black men were forced into penal labor across the United States, but especially in the South, for supposedly breaking the law. 
Also, a central component of the Black Codes at this time is laws against so-called vagrancy, which whites in the South perceived as super dangerous because Black people were no longer compelled to work under slavery, right? Right. In many states in the South, Black people were required to be able to show annual labor contracts to avoid vagrancy charges and then being put in the convict lease system. Other Black codes restricted Black people's right to own property, to conduct business, to lease land, to participate in democracy, to move freely in public spaces. So this is when full-on segregation, just after the Civil War, this is when full-on segregation in public spaces starts. You were criminalized for being out of work. Your failure to pay a certain tax or to work at the right place could be construed as vagrancy. You know, some states made explicit that Black people did not have the right to bear arms. It goes on and on and on. This was a time, to put it simply, of racial terror against Black people. So we have the 13th Amendment, meaning black people aren't literal slaves anymore. But the South at this time, just after the Civil War, is doing its damnedest to basically re-implement the system of slavery and the economic and material reality of slavery just by another name. Right. So it's not literal slavery, but black people are still not recognized as citizens of the United States at this time. They have next to no legal rights at all. And there's nothing even close to social equality forming. At this time, it was the Republican Party in Washington who was concerned with this, and they sought to enact further constitutional amendments and legislation to rectify this injustice and bring the southern states and their legislatures under control. So the 14th Amendment is passed in 1868, and it provides full citizenship and equal protection of the law to black people. And then two years after that, in 1870, the 15th Amendment provides black men with the right to vote. So again, like with the 13th Amendment, the 14th and 15th Amendments have specific provisions in them that Congress can make legislation that will enforce these amendments. Congress is empowered to act by passing new legislation to make the protections of the 14th and 15th Amendments real. So let's talk about this case and how these cases made it up to the Supreme Court. Congress uses that power from the 13th and 14th Amendments to enact legislation And they do that with a series of civil rights laws passed between 1866 and 1875. These civil rights laws said lots of things, including that all citizens of the United States had the right to enter into contracts, to buy and sell land, to sue and present evidence in court. These laws authorized the use of federal troops to patrol elections in the South. They provided criminal penalties for depriving people of their civil rights. And lastly, the Civil Rights Act of 1875, the last of these laws that was passed, mandated equal access in places of public accommodations without regard to race. So after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are passed, Congress at this time, under the leadership of radical Republicans, is passing civil rights laws under mostly the 14th Amendment. Right. So to talk about the law a bit, the 14th Amendment lays the groundwork for the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1875. The 14th Amendment says various things, but the most substantive portion and the most relevant here says, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Like re-mentioned, this language is a direct response to the rise of racist laws and practices in the South meant to give free black people the same legal protections as whites. 
And Section 5 of the 14th Amendment says, Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article, right? That's the enforcement mechanism that Ree was talking about. Right. So Congress passes the Civil Rights Law of 1875 pursuant to this enforcement power. And what the law does is essentially target, uh, at least for, for our purposes, public accommodations issues, right? Saying that everyone is entitled to access public accommodations, public transport, theaters, et cetera, regardless of their skin color. Right. Meant to target these sort of private practices in the South. But the court, in an eight-to-one decision written by Justice Joseph Bradley, struck the law down, saying that the 14th Amendment only applied to states, not private actors, and therefore Congress could not pass a law telling private individuals and businesses not to discriminate. (sighs) So I'll talk more about that argument a bit later, but first we should talk about another item. The plaintiffs didn't just base their argument in the 14th Amendment. They also base it on the 13th, the amendment that abolished slavery, arguing that this sort of widespread discrimination is actually incidental to slavery. Mm -hmm. It's so directly connected to the legacy of slavery that the court must strike it down in order to enforce the abolition of slavery. Right. Right. The court rejects this argument. They say, quote, embrace yourselves here. (laughs) This this language. (laughs) When a man has emerged from slavery and by the aid of beneficent legislation has shaken off the inseparable concomitance of that state... There must be some stage in the progress of his elevation when he takes the rank of a mere citizen and ceases to be the special favorite of the laws. Mm -hmm. And when his rights as a citizen or a man are to be protected in the ordinary modes by which other men's rights are protected. Oh, gross. Former slaves, the special special (laughs) favorites of the law. Incredible. So the court is saying, look, At some point, we have to stop giving black people privileges just because of slavery. Oh, my God. You know, if you've heard conservatives talk about slavery, you've heard some of them say, look, slavery was a long time ago. We have to move on. Mm -hmm. Right. We can't base our laws around Mm -hmm. it. The court here is saying that, except it's 20 years (laughs) after slavery ended. Right. Slavery was as recent to them as Limp Bizkit is to us. That's stupid, Peter. (laughs) That's, I think it's a good way to conceptualize it. Here's another quote. There were thousands of free colored people in this country before the abolition of slavery, enjoying all the essential rights of life, liberty, and property the same as white citizens. Is that right? Yet no one at that time thought that it was any invasion of their personal status as free men because they were not admitted to all the privileges enjoyed by white citizens or because they were subjected to discriminations in the enjoyment of accommodations in inns, public conveyances, and places of amusement. Mere discriminations on account of race or color were not regarded as badges of slavery. End quote. So, a lot going on there, but the court is essentially saying that slavery and general discrimination against black people were separate phenomena, Right. Even free black people were being discriminated against. So how can it be related to slavery? Right, right. (laughs) Which I'll go on record and say, we disagree with this. Yeah. After many years of study, I have come to the position that slavery and racism were in fact related. Mm. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They are in fact deeply intertwined Mm -hmm. in my view. Inextricably linked. 
Yes. Right. I, I know it's brave to say that, you know? Yeah. Like, it might be worth noting that, like, white people were never slaves in the United States. Like, sure. isn't that worth throwing out there? Yeah. Uh, let's pop that into consideration for a second. Seems relevant. The idea that, <laughs> gen- like, discrimination against black people and slavery are just, like, two completely separate categories is so ludicrous that I don't think it's worth doing anything. You just have to sort of pause the podcast run around in a circle for a little bit, get some energy out and then continue. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, I think what's extremely frustrating to me about this opinion, too, is the way the court does away with the argument that the legacy of slavery is so strong at this point that it has basically recreated a system of slavery. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, I just went through some of the codes, the history at this time, not just of racial violence and racial terror, but also the economic and material reality of the free slaves, right? In the South, you were still forced to work or else you would go to jail, right? Right. If you did go to jail, you were forced to work there. So again, it's just 20 years later. The systems are not that different. Just because one is called slavery and one is not doesn't mean that they are substantively materially different. And the court doesn't have anything to say about that. Yeah. um, I think we're going to get into the dissent in a second, but I think one nice point in it is the history here, the chronology is illuminating, right? Like yes, Congress passes the 13th Amendment and it's like, all right, we've made Blacks equal citizens. Yeah. And then the South institutes these like awful laws and still treats Black people as, you know, second class citizens and tries to recreate slavery. So they pass the 14th and 15th Amendments. Right. And there's still issues. So they pass the Civil Rights Act. Right. Right. And it's like, it's clear what's happening here. Right. Yeah. This is all one project. It's one legislative project to create equal citizenship. That's right. And the court is stepping in right when we're sort of on the cusp of actually getting to constitutional and legislative scheme that could ensure uh, what Congress is attempting to do here, the court steps in and says that can't possibly be right. Right. It's such an obvious question. You know, if these are unrelated to slavery, why, when slavery was abolished, did these laws immediately follow? Right. 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 And the court doesn't even touch it. So, you know, it's hard to overstate the damage that the court did here to efforts to remediate the rise of institutional racism after slavery. This 13th Amendment argument, the idea that racism was inextricably tied to slavery, is a compelling one and one that could have been used to protect the rights of black people in the Reconstruction era and beyond. And instead, the court kneecaps the argument and it's never effectively deployed again. It's just, you know, this sort of what if um, that died in the 1880s. Yeah. So we should talk about the dissent from Justice Harlan, the first Justice Harlan. And uh, it was 8-1, so he was a lone dissenter, but it's sort of a famous dissent. Most people read it in law school. And there's a lot to it, so this will be a little necessarily reductive. But I think his strongest point is that before the Civil War and before the Civil War amendments, there was the Fugitive Slave Law. And the Fugitive Slave Law came out of Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, which provided that no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, 
shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. This is basically saying, according to the Constitution, if a slave gets free and runs to a different state, he has to be returned right. to his owner. Right. This doesn't empower Congress. There's no enunciation of power for Congress to legislate on this. But there's a series of cases where the court says, look, this is a right inherent to slave owners protected by the Constitution. And so, of course, there's this implied power of Congress to protect this and to protect it by legislating the conduct of individuals, not just states, not just prevent states from passing laws saying, you know, a freed slave can stay here, but also to require people to return freed slaves to their to their masters. And he quotes some language from these that's like pretty if in different contexts would be great language, right? That a clause of the Constitution conferring a right should not be so construed as to make it shadowy or unsubstantial or leave the citizen without a remedial power adequate for its protection, right? Yeah. Taken on its own, I feel like that language sort of points to, yeah, of course, the Civil Rights Act is, is constitutional, right? Right. Like otherwise, right. the rights promised by the Civil War amendments aren't really available. Exactly. To black Americans. But there's a second like layer point to this, which is how could it be the case that the Constitution has an implied power of Congress to protect the rights of slave owners, but even when Congress is given explicit power to protect the rights of freed slaves, yeah. that's when we have to be really careful about the limits of Congress's power and, yeah, and how right. we as the court interpret it, right? So there's like two layers to this. I mean, it's just, I don't know how you read that. You have to be shameless, yeah. right? Like the eight justices in the majority just are just totally shameless because it's it's irrefutable. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Right. Something that I've been thinking about though is dissents in general with this case, which you will hear in law school and you'll hear in conversations about the law now that a good dissent can be very important and can even become a majority holding eventually. Right. And I think I've made the point before in this this podcast, but if not, it's worth making explicit that like the only scenarios in which dissents become majority opinions are pretty exceptional. And that is when there is a change to the ideological makeup of the court, there's like the right political moment, and the right case comes along. Right. But even that happened here in the 60s, right? There was a massive, mm -hmm. 1960s, there's a massive ideological shift in the court. The political moment was right. And cases came before the court where they had the chance to reconsider this and they didn't. And this is like a notable dissent. This is like one of the great dissents. Right. This is yes. known as a great dissent. And it's a dissent that was like engaging with the reality of the situation while the majority is, you know, sort of blinkered by white supremacist propaganda, to be frank, about what was yeah. going on in the South in, during Reconstruction. And so great dissents are fine and that's fine and all, but majority opinions are what matters. And that's what this dissent makes me think of more yeah. than anything is yeah. that- <laughs> that that it's winning that that really matters, right? Because right. these cases are still good law, right. and they still 
inform our politics and our jurisprudence today. Right. Absolutely. So I guess, you know, we should talk big picture about where this fits into the timeline of the Reconstruction era. This decision is just a few years after the Compromise of 1877. The 1876 election, if you don't know, hotly contested, (laughs) to put it lightly, and an informal compromise is reached where the Democrats would cede the presidency to Rutherford B. Hayes, but in exchange, military forces, federal military forces, would be withdrawn from the South. Those forces had been overseeing elections and generally just maintaining a presence in the South, which was essentially an occupied territory following the Civil War, right? So a narrative emerges from this era that the North engaged in like excessive and often brutal meddling in Southern affairs after the war. And that narrative serves to justify the retreat of the North during Reconstruction, right? The idea that the the North had sort of overplayed its hand. It had gone too far. Yeah. And it's not until the arrival of W.E.B. Du Bois and other historians several decades later that you see pushback against that narrative, essentially saying, well, no, the federal presence was necessary and the post-war South was an awful place <laughs> for black people. And, you know, sort of putting together the early elements of the narrative that would come to glue together the ideology of the mid-century civil rights movement. Yes. Now, I don't want to oversimplify an incredibly complex period of American history, but I think a simple way to view this era is just a political and cultural stalemate, right? Southerners want to maintain their system of white supremacy, while Northern Republicans want to maintain their grip on federal power. As a result, the North throws Black people to the Southern wolves. Mm -hmm. And the underlying dispute the plain conflict between the ideals of the Constitution and the political realities in the South especially are not resolved. And the result is that the prospect of meaningful civil rights legislation stalls out for nearly 80 years. Yeah. Yeah. But the court between this decision and its decision concerning segregation just over a decade later in Plessy v. Ferguson had an opportunity to sort of force everyone's hand a bit, right, to at least apply political pressure on everyone involved to recognize the rights of black citizens. So, you know, I I don't want to overstate the role of the court, but it is an integral part of this sort of vast institutional failure that doesn't just allow for Jim Crow to flourish, but like does so purposefully. I think that's exactly right, Peter, and well stated. I think, Michael, you were talking about the layers of this opinion, and it might be even too basic to say, but I think it's worth stating it just explicitly, is you see in the difference between the court's decision on the fugitive slave law versus the court's decision on the Civil Rights Act here, you see that the court prioritizes and protects property rights over the civil rights of people, right? Mm -hmm. And you realize by looking at these cases and looking at the history of Reconstruction and the court's role during Reconstruction that the court has always been like this. And we don't learn. I don't know if y'all did. I did not learn the civil rights cases in law school. And I think it's so essential to the understanding of how the Supreme Court works. And I think it's really a failure of legal education and other education that we learn cases like Brown versus Board, right? But we don't learn cases Mm -hmm. like these cases, the civil rights cases of of the 1880s. In preparation for this episode, I read an uh, interesting article from the historian uh, Eric Foner, 
And, you know, he describes like the political climate around this time. And it sounds like one similar to what it was like, uh, you know, after 9-11, where the political media and sort of the political class all seemed to have come to this conclusion that the federal government had overstepped, that they had gone a little too far in the South with Reconstruction, and that what was happening down there was corrupt government and proof positive that uh, Black people shouldn't be equal citizens and shouldn't hold political power. Right. And Foner argues, I think, pretty persuasively that this is what's shaping opinions like the civil rights cases, as well as others, uh, slaughterhouse cases and, and such from this era. And since then, you know, historians have basically said, like, that's fucking wrong. That's just absolutely wrong. We have a very different view and historical consensus now on what Reconstruction was, what it was like, and what missteps there were, if any, were retreating from it, right? Like, yeah. and yet these cases still sort of inform our jurisprudence and, and shape it. So I don't know how you can teach modern 14th Amendment law without this understanding that like it is literally shaped by decisions that are like steeped in white supremacist propaganda, right? That are just like come right out of this culture of white supremacy. And that literally like those are good precedent today, right? Unlike, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson, they haven't been overturned and they still hold sway. It's not just that they're good precedent. It's they shaped like the framework through which the 14th Amendment is analyzed. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So yes. even the parts of it that are sort of like nominally discarded, right? Everyone says like, oh my God, like Plessy, of course that was wrongly decided. Of course, racial segregation is unconstitutional, you know? Right. Um, how dare you even suggest otherwise? But all of the inputs into that decision remain. All of the preconceptions about state and federal power and the scope of the federal government, the scope of equal protection. All of those are still in place. Right. The primary argument here really, and with the part of this decision that still resonates in the law like the loudest, is the 14th Amendment argument. The argument that the 14th Amendment, which includes the Equal Protection Clause, only applies to the states and therefore cannot be the basis for laws that outlaw discrimination by private parties. Right. Um, Again, this is the dominant view of the 14th Amendment to this day. Right. In large part because the text of the 14th Amendment is pretty clear that states must treat people equally under the law. Right. Text doesn't say anything about private individuals or businesses. And so what has emerged from that is this doctrine that Congress can only regulate state action, right? right? The state actor doctrine. What that misses is the extent to which the actions of private parties and state and local governments were and are intertwined and inseparable. Yeah. State violence through the police has historically been the primary mechanism for enforcing private discrimination. Right. If you say you don't want to serve black people in your establishment, you're making a claim about your property rights. Mm-hmm. Your property rights are a creation of the state and they're enforced by the state. Absolutely. Right. When you put up a sign that says no trespassing, right, it's a statement that you are staking a claim to your property rights and implicit in that is that violators will be subject to the force of the government. That's right. right. And, you know, to speak more concretely, 
When the civil rights movement comes to a head in the 1960s, you see Bull Connor and his ilk using police power to violently enforce largely private regimes of segregation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. On top of that, think about corporations that engage in discrimination, right? Corporations are literally legal entities created by the state. Right. Mm -hmm. Any discriminatory action taken by a corporation is one that could not be taken if not for the state's involvement. That's right. So it's not that the interpretation that the 14th Amendment applies to the states is incorrect per se. What's incorrect is the idea that you can draw a clear line between state action and private action when they are, in fact, interlinked and deeply, deeply overlapping. And it's that incorrect assumption that is the basis for 14th Amendment jurisprudence to this day. Right. Right. That's exactly right. And that's why the focus, I think, on the moral uh, muddiness of this decision is so important. Right. So discriminatory behavior is regulated by Congress. Now you'll think like, you know, there are anti-discrimination laws. Almost all of those are passed under Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. That's like right. think about how illogical <laughs> yeah. that is. Right. That private discriminatory right. behavior is only colorable under the law if Congress deems that it offends interstate commerce rather right. than using the basis for those laws as the four. 14th Amendment, which says very clearly what it's supposed to cover, right? Right, right. And, and think about how fragile that makes those laws. Yes. Right? Like the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s are largely predicated on Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. That's and those right. were upheld under that power. But the conservative argument is just inherently more compelling where they're like, but you're not really trying to regulate commerce. Right. You're right. trying exactly. to regulate discrimination. Exactly. Right? Right. That's a very compelling and sensible argument. Right. And the only reason it exists is because the Supreme Court cut off the much more logical part of the Constitution to tie those pieces of legislation to, right? You could could say we're passing civil rights legislation to enforce the Equal Protection Clause. Of course, that makes sense. But the court cuts that avenue off. Right. And now we're in a situation where modern civil rights laws are sort of hanging by the thread of the Commerce Clause. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So I did want to talk a little bit about how this should inform how you think about modern debates surrounding progressives and and the courts, right? So we argue unapologetically on this podcast for a robust left agenda being enacted not only through legislation, but also through the courts. Right. And this is actually a controversial opinion in legal circles among people who profess to hold the same values as we do, right? A large portion, if not the majority of supposedly liberal law professors will tell you that any court enacted left policy, like those of the Warren court, could lead to conservative reaction and spark like a tit for tat. And it basically amounts to like chiding liberals for bringing the current radical right-wing court like on themselves yeah with like uh-huh. the supposed yeah. excesses of the Warren court and so i think this case is like a good object lesson on why that idea is so facile like what we see here is reactionary forces on the court in the courts pushing back not on earlier liberal court decisions but on legislation and constitutional amendments, right? right. On fucking constitutional Brand new amendments. Stuff. Yeah. Right. 
And this is a pattern you'll find throughout legal history, right? The Lochner era, which we just covered a few weeks ago, that was in response to progressive legislation, not uh, progressive court decisions. Right. If you read like Stephen Tellis's book about the rise of the conservative legal movement, he'll tell you it started in the late 40s in response to the New Deal legislation, Yes, um, not the Warren Court, although the Warren Court was a big sort of spark for them. Right. Uh, and you can see it, you know, in modern conservatives, how they reacted to Obamacare or the way they treat the Voting Rights Act. Absolutely. So like my takeaway from this case is there will always always be reactionaries who try to prevent or roll back social progress. And they won't just artificially limit themselves to like mirroring how that social progress was enacted. Right. Like the fucking reactionaries, the, the redeemers in the South weren't like, oh, I guess we have to pass a constitutional amendment. Right. They are going to attack it at every avenue they can. They're going to try to pass their own legislation. They're going to be in the courts. They're going to be in paramilitary organizations no yes. matter what. Yeah. How could that be more clear than it is here? This is like 20 years after the passage of the civil rights amendments. Right. There's a liberal fantasy that if you if you did it right, it would work. Right. 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 They yeah. passed a constitutional amendment. Right. It says equal protection of laws and Congress can pass laws to enforce it. They do that. They pass the law. Eight to one. Right. It's yeah. struck down. Right. There right. are people still today who fly the fucking Confederate flag. Of course, there's no way they will accept as legitimate your social progress. It's right. not going to happen. However, it's implemented. Yeah, it's the same shit. It's the same arguments. 150 years later, we're still having the same debates. It doesn't fucking matter right. whether it comes through the courts or not. Right. I was mentioning that you're seeing the same argument you see now, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, slavery's behind us. Right. Get over it. You know, it's been 20 years. Exactly. Can't they move on at this point? Yeah. Why are you playing the race card? Yeah. Right. Michael, you were sharing a quote from the 1860s when Andrew Johnson said, the distinction of race and color is made to operate in favor of the colored and against the white race. <laughs> reverse racism. Right. It's a reverse racism argument from the 1860s. <laughs> it's the same fucking arguments because it's unbelievable. reactionary impulses are identical across generations. Right. Yes. Because all they're opposed to is progress per se. All they support is hierarchy per exactly. se. Yeah. So, of course, the opposition to that is going to look the same right. yeah. across all these different circumstances and context. You know, it's fucking wild that you can see the slavery was so long ago argument. Right. And it's fucking 20 yeah. years ago. Like, how? <laughs> I, yeah. it, it, when I was reading this, it was like there was a little beanie on my head and it was just the helicopter was spinning. <laughs> yeah. Was yeah. Losing my fucking mind. <laughs> And the only thing that like clocks this as like a century old opinion is like the language, right? The writing style. Right. The right. argument has not changed like at all. No. It's rare that when you go back to these old cases, you see what looks like modern political divides. Mm -hmm. You know, usually the political contours are just a little bit different because it was a different time. Right. When we looked at Buck v. Bell, one of our early cases from the 20s, it was about, you know, the treatment of the mentally disabled. And you didn't see the sort of usual political divisions uh, because the politics of the issue have changed so dramatically in the past hundred years. Right. Yeah. But here they're the same because it's the same fucking issue because it's the same fucking issue. And so, yeah, that's like the lesson I take from this, right? That, uh, 
yeah, we think the courts can and should be an avenue of social progress. And we don't apologize for it because the only way progress happens is if you fucking scratch and claw and fight for every inch of it when you're in power. That's right. And scratch and claw and fight to not cede a single inch of it when you're not in power. Right. And it doesn't matter where the power lies. It doesn't matter whether it's in the executive branch or Congress or the courts. When you have it, you have to use it because when you cede even an inch, this is what happens. Yes. You end up being set back for decades, if not centuries, exactly. like literally a hundred right. plus years later, we're still living with this shit. Right. Today, we've been sort of inundated with a, a brutal new anti-abortion law in Missouri, mm. which forbids people from leaving the state to get an abortion in another state, which is a direct challenge to existing Supreme Court precedent. Mm -hmm. Absolutely disgusting anti-trans bill oh, God. in Idaho. Yeah. And you have like the don't say gay bill in Florida, yes. right? This is just maybe half a decade of liberals resting on their laurels with respect to a couple of these right. issues, yeah. right? Fascism fucking fills that vacuum right away. Real quick. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Like the idea that you can just sort of pray for institutional and incremental gains and hope that we will one day, you know, wake up in a better world. It's just plainly untrue. Yeah. yeah. There's something so bleak about reading this case and just seeing modern discussions of race right there in the pages of the Supreme Court reporter from 1883. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let's get it on the record. Last week, we were afraid to take sides in the Ukraine v. Russia war. <laughs> this week, after mounting political pressure, we're going to say it. We're against all wars. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So you thought you could corner us? No. <laughs> we're against all wars. We support Ukraine but not the Nazi parts. Right, sure. that's right. We want Russia to do well in their own right. Also not the Nazi parts. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, Strickland v. Washington, case from the 80s about the ineffective assistance of counsel. Something I know a thing or two about. <laughs> <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Thanks for subscribing. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Is it the 100th episode? Oh, yeah. We don't know. <laughs> no one's going to know. No one else is going to count. That's not true. Some fucking moron's going to count. <laughs> like multiple people reached out to me with like showered hair drain solutions. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure someone's going to count the episodes. <laughs>